Hey everybody, for remediation this time, we're going back to chapter 8, an introduction to metabolism, where we talk about enzymes and energy and all that fun shit, right before we get into photosynthesis and respiration. So this is kind of the precursor to all that fun stuff. So hope you guys enjoy the episode. Welcome to Biology for Bastards, where we teach biology in the most profane way you have ever seen or heard. I am your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. I'm going to warn you, today's shit is tough. It is some intense shit. We're on chapter 8, the introduction to metabolism. We're working through the AP Biology curriculum this season. Didn't know if this episode was going to get out. School started. I am a licensed teacher. I have taught this before. And school just went back. I've had one week under my belt. And needless to say, I've been drinking a shit ton of coffee. So I've got my cup of coffee here. I'm ready to go. It's 4 o'clock on, in the afternoon. And I just brewed a fresh pot. That's how bad it's been. Well, we're going to get through it. Alright, let's do this shit. Metabolism. <clears throat> Essentially what it is, it's just all the chemical shit that's going on inside an organism. It's every single chemical reaction that's keeping a motherfucker alive. That's metabolism. Everything getting used, everything being created, that's metabolism. So it's a shit ton of reactions just going nonstop. Now, we do have two different pathways that are part of metabolism. We have stuff that breaks stuff up and stuff that build break stuff down build stuff up that's what i was shit there's probably going to be a shit ton of mistakes because like i said i exhausted but we're doing it because that's the nature of the game so we have catabolic pathways and anabolic pathways sometimes the catabolic pathways that's catabolism your anabolic are anabolism so Catabolic, that is where you are breaking shit down into simpler things. So if you know chemistry, you've got cation and anion. Your cation are the positive ones. Catabolic releases energy. You have your big polymers, you break them down into something simpler. That is a catabolic process. You release energy. Now your anabolic pathways are the opposite because everything's about balance. So anabolism uses energy to build stuff up. So creating sugar through photosynthesis, that's an anabolic pathway. Breaking down that sugar through cellular respiration, two topics that we're going to get into in the next two chapters, but breaking it down through respiration, that's catabolism. That's catabolic because it releases energy. Now all this shit about energy. Energy is just the capacity to do work. And in the case of biology, what we really care about is the ability to rearrange matter. Because that's all the shit we're doing. You're turning some salad into a person, rearranging shit within there. That salad has energy. Or that steak, if you're, you know, you like a steak over a salad because you don't value your cholesterol. So, there are different forms of energy. We have kinetic energy 
and potential energy. Those are the two main forms. Kinetic is your Ke, potential is Pe. That's pretty easy to figure out. With biology, our kinetic energy is typically heat, thermal energy. So as things get done, it releases heat, and typically our potential energy is chemical energy because potential is stored energy and kinetic is energy of motion. So as things get going, things move around, the atoms or the molecules are moving, that creates the heat that we experience. And potential energy, it's stored because of position or structure. And in biology, that structure has to do with the chemical bonds, the structure that the chemical has because of the bonds that have been formed. And it is totally possible and absolutely necessary that we can convert energy from one to the other because that's what organisms are. We are nothing but a bunch of fucking awesome energy converters. Convert from one into the other. When you study this transformation of energy, that's what thermodynamics is. The study of the energy transformations. And when you study energy transformations, you get closed systems and you can have open systems. A closed system is something completely shut off from its surroundings. And a go-to example is like when you have coffee in the thermos, because coffee's our best friend. You put the lid on, it stays in there. Everything within that container is that closed system. In an open system, however, things can be transferred between the system that we're looking at and all of the surroundings. So it doesn't take a stretch or a genius to figure out that an organism is nothing but an open system because you have the organism and it's interacting with its fucking surroundings and it's just doing its shit. So biology is just a collection of open systems. The universe as a whole is a closed system, but life is an open system. So getting into thermodynamics, we have two laws that we really care about. We have the first law and the second law very cleverly named. So, the first one, the first law, refers to the fact that the universe is a closed system, and it says that the energy of the universe is constant. Because as it goes from one form to another, the amount of energy is staying the same. So as kinetic is converted into potential, Potential can be converted into kinetic, but the amount of total energy remains exactly the same. It's got the name of the conservation of energy. That's the nickname associated to the first law of thermodynamics, or the that's the principle associated with the first law, because energy stays the same. The amount of energy stays the same, I'm sorry. I'm not going to fucking apologize. I'm making this. I'm fucking exhausted. I'm chugging coffee like it's my job, which I guess it kind of is, so... I'm not going to apologize, so I take my apology back. Now, the second law of thermodynamics states that for every energy transfer or transformation, so every time we change energy from one form to the next, we are increasing the entropy, which is a fancy-ass science word for disorder, of the universe. So to kind of put it together in a nice pretty-ass package, the quantity of energy stays the same because of the first law, but the quality of the energy changes because of the second law. And during every transfer that we have, some of that energy is going to be useless or unusable 
and it's often lost its heat. So this is kind of, it was taught to me as the messy room idea, this idea of entropy, this this order in the universe, where it doesn't take much energy, it doesn't take energy for a room to get messy. You're, it's clean, and then all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, this shit is everywhere. But it does take energy to clean it back up. Right? And that has to do with where the energy and the entropy is coming from. So when you have a system like an organism or a bedroom or whatever, um, you have free energy. Okay, and that is the system's energy available to actually do work. And there's an equation you can follow along in the show notes. It's delta G equals delta H minus T delta S, which sounds a whole bunch of fun. Delta just means change. So the change in free energy is equal to the change in H, which is the system's enthalpy, which is total energy, the energy of the system, minus the T for temperature in Kelvin multiplied by the change in entropy. Remember, that entropy is the, the disorder. With me so far. Kind of going a little quick because fueled by coffee right now. But we have two types of reactions. If you haven't picked up on this shit, there's always like two of something because there's an in and an out, an up and down, a left and a right. There's always fucking opposites. That's what biology is. Everything has to balance Okay, so just how we have catabolism and anabolism. We have stuff to build up, stuff to break down. It's all about balance. We have reactions to describe whether energy is released or energy is required. If the reaction requires energy, it is endergonic because you are absorbing the free energy. And if you do that equation right, you have a delta G that is positive because it is absorbing that energy. Now, if it releases energy, it's an exergonic reaction, exer for the energy going out. And an exergonic reaction, those are spontaneous. Okay, your delta G is negative. <clears throat> now at equilibrium, so when nothing is changing, that is when your G is the lowest possible value. And that's what life tries to get to. But Life is not in equilibrium. When something's in equilibrium, it's it's not alive. Because life is all about these chaotic processes um, trying to do its best to stay alive. So, when it comes to a cell, there's three types of work that we can do. We can do mechanical work, actually moving and stuff of the cell. We can do transport, moving of stuff within the cell. And we can do chemical work, such as making reactions occur that wouldn't normally occur. So the, what we have to do is we've got to combine our resources. We have these processes, these exergonic processes that will happen by themselves. They happen spontaneously because they release energy and that decreases the entropy. But we have these endergonic reactions that absorb energy that we have to do in order to stay alive. So what do we do? We couple the reactions and we use an exergonic process to power an endergonic one. So we use a process that releases energy to drive a reaction that requires energy. And the way we do that is by using this molecule known as ATP, or adenosine triphosphate. 
That is our main thing that is going to couple all the energy and lets us basically stay the fuck alive. Without ATP, we'd be dead. Okay, so it's adenosine triphosphate, it's an adenine, it's a ribose, so just like an RNA, and then it's three phosphate groups instead of the one that the nucleotide would have. When you break the bond between the second and the third phosphate group, you break it through hydrolysis, because remember hydrolysis is splitting with water, you release energy. The reason you release energy isn't because the bond has energy, but because what you turn it into, which is ADP, adenosine diphosphate, that has a lower amount of energy, a lower amount of free energy than ATP does. So breaking that second and third bond, separating those phosphate groups from each other, converts ATP into something that has less free energy and therefore is a process that will happen. Therefore, it is an exergonic reaction and it releases the energy. So we use that to power reactions that require energy. And as long as the reaction that we're coupling it with has a G, so remember, G is that total energy that is less than, than the amount of energy released by our ATP, the reaction can take place. So think of it as you're selling some shit to buy something else. As long as the shit that you sell has more energy, costs more, you get more for it than you need to spend, the reaction can take place. And the way that these reactions work, these endergonic reactions become this kind of exergonic thing, is as ATP breaks apart, it transfers that third phosphate group to the other reactant, and it makes this thing called a phosphorylated intermediate, which means the thing in the middle has a phosphate group on it. It's become phosphorylated. And that thing is now less stable than it was without the phosphate group, and it changes and turns into the final product. Now, sometimes we can use things called catalysts to help speed up the reaction, because every single reaction has an activation energy. It's just the energy required to start the fucking reaction. And some takes so much fucking energy, we would die if we just waited on it to happen. So we don't, we use a catalyst, which is just something that changes the rate of the reaction by lowering the activation energy, and it does so in a way where it does not change, the catalyst does not change in the process. And in the body, or the cell or whatever fucking piece of life we're talking about we have enzymes enzymes are proteins that act as biological catalysts okay in what the activation actually sorry the act not going to apologize take it back coffee's starting to kick in i'm starting to get a little ahead of myself so i drink a little bit more what the activation energy actually is it's what it's the amount of energy needed to take the reactants and to twist them and to change them into such an unstable state that the bonds break and when the bonds break they're able to form new bonds and produce our reactants now when you use an enzyme they work in a couple different ways 
um, they do not change the overall release of energy. That's a very important thing. No matter how they work, they don't change the overall amount of energy. They just change how easy it is for the thing to contort and change so that the bonds can break. With me so far? Good. Good shit. If not, pause it. Go back. We're only 15 minutes in. We're almost done. This one would be a little quicker just because it's so fucking dense. It's worth a second or third listen to. Um, there's no real way to dumb this shit down anymore than I have. It's just, it's some deep shit. So, hopefully you're with me. Now, talking about enzymes and exactly how they work, we have these enzymes that are super fucking specific. They usually only work on one reaction, forward and reverse. And it happens to be so specific because it has this active site. And this active site, which is typically only a few amino acids in size, so we're talking small as hell, makes this thing called the enzyme substrate complex. So this active site gives the substrate, which is the reactant that is being acted on, a place to meet up, essentially. And as the substrates come together, the enzyme can either just give them a place to collect everything and make the reaction happen quicker. It may pull the substrates into the transitional state, that place that has more that is more unstable than the final product or the starting one. It may create an environment that is better for the reaction to take place. So slightly less whatever, slightly more whatever, just a better environment for the actual reaction to take place. Or it can directly participate in the chemical reaction. But no matter how it works, that it, the induced fit that happens as a part of the enzyme taking up the substrate and kind of wrapping around it, the enzyme remains completely unchanged. Now, an enzyme can be changed by chemicals. That's kind of an obvious little fucker. But also by temperature and pH because enzymes are proteins. And as we've discussed before, proteins are held together with a bunch of weak interactions. The secondary and the tertiary structures, the interactions between the backbones and then the R chains. So as the temperature changes or the pH changes, it disrupts those hydrogen bonds, those disulfide bridges, all that shit from earlier stuff, and the protein starts to change. When it changes, it becomes less effective, or it becomes more effective if you are looking at the ideal pH and the ideal temperature. All the enzymes that work in the body work best at body temperature and at the pH of the body. Once you start to get too far away from that, they start to fall apart, enzymes don't work, and you fucking die. Now, sometimes you need things called cofactors, helpers, to work with your enzyme. So a cofactor is a non-protein enzyme helper. So this is your zinc, your iron, your copper, all these things that you need, kind of your minerals. Okay? Um, and your coenzymes are organic cofactors, so things like vitamins. So just like catalysts can be anything, and enzymes are biological catalysts, 
cofactors can be a lot of things, and coenzymes are your biological cofactors. So you need your vitamins because they help enzymes work that keep you alive. You need certain minerals, and that's why you should eat the salad I talked about earlier, as opposed to the steak, because you need certain things, certain nutrients found in that salad. Now, when it comes to inhibiting enzymes, because sometimes we don't want enzymes to work as well. Sometimes um, we do want them to work and other things don't want it to work. So things like toxins and poisons, they inhibit our enzymes. And that's bad because if it's a very important enzyme, that's how you die. But there's two main categories of inhibitors. There's competitive inhibitors and there's non-competitive inhibitors. They both inhibit the enzyme, so they make the enzyme less effective. And whether it's competitive or non-competitive determines on where the inhibitor binds to on the protein. So if the inhibitor binds to the active site of the enzyme and actually competes with the substrate, that is the competitive inhibitor because it's competing for the substrate. It's like I can only take one thing. I can either take the inhibitor or the substrate. Non-competitive inhibitors bind to some other part of the enzyme that is not the active site, but what it ends up doing is it changes the shape of the enzyme to the point where the active site is no longer functional. So imagine if you've got a lock and a competitive inhibitor would be you have a second quiche crammed into the lock and you can't get the right key in. That would be competitive inhibition where a non-competitive inhibitor would be like you break, you bind to the back of the lock or you put something over the front of the lock and you can't even get to the keyhole. So that is your inhibition. And it's pretty, it's some fun stuff. It's how poisons work and poisons are fun. Everybody loves poisons. And then kind of our next to last thing we're going to talk about is how do we regulate this shit? So poisons and toxins and inhibitions, inhibitors, are fairly permanent. Um, to regulate, we can turn things on and off. And a good way to do it is through this process called allosteric regulation. So this is where we bind to one location to control the ability of it to work at another location. So you bind in one spot and that changes the active site to make it either better or worse. What makes this different is that this is reversible. So you can allosterically bind an activator to an enzyme and that's going to stabilize the active site and allow the enzyme to do its job. Or you can bind an inhibitor and that's going to stabilize the inactive form of the enzyme turning the enzyme off. So we have a reversible way to regulate our enzymes as opposed to the inhibition, which is just turning it off forever. And then we have a special type of allosteric inhibition, which is this feedback loop, uh, where we have this thing called feedback inhibition. And that is where the end product of a pathway will go back and allosterically bind to the enzyme in an earlier stage, changing the active site and preventing the reaction from going long any further. 
So it's basically as you get enough product at the end, some of that can go back and bind the enzyme and say, cut this off at the beginning, and it stops it, and you don't waste any energy, you don't waste resources, and it makes everything a hell of a lot more efficient. And guess what? That's the end. That's all the shit. I know it was a lot. I know it was dense. Um, no real way to fluff that shit up. So I'd recommend going back and listening to this one again if you're struggling. Definitely check out the show notes um, and follow along with the PowerPoint. Feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at Bio for Bastards. Um, and as long as I don't die in the next week, episode will come out next week just like usual. Keep spreading the word. Those downloads keep going up higher and higher, and it's making me fucking happy as hell. Um, so keep spreading the word. Let everybody know. And until next time, thanks for listening. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at Bio4Bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is Feeling Good by Purple Planet Music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.